0: Well, let's all open the Word of God together to the epistle of James. If you're just visiting with us, we've been walking through this wonderful epistle for a number of months now. And we're at chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 8 through 10. We're still in that section where James is addressing the sin of partiality or favoritism among the members of the church. And you might remember the illustration of the rich man and the poor man who happened to come into the service of worship at the very same time and how the rich man was treated differently than the poor man. He was treated with honor and respect simply because of his status. You can read about that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And then we saw last Lord's Day how James counteracted that grievous sin of partiality or showing favoritism with a scriptural doctrine, the doctrine of God's elective mercies. And there James says, Have you not not remembered that the Lord has chosen the poor, the poor of the world to be rich and to be heirs of faith, that the Lord has especially chosen the nobodies of the world to display the glory of salvation. And that poor man entered worship. Maybe, maybe he was one of God's choice elect, and you have treated him with dishonor. And we saw how the doctrine of election is the spiritual vaccine to that spiritual disease of pride, which is at the core of the practice of partiality. Well, with all that before us, James is going further in addressing the problem of partiality, and he's going to now bring out something else on the table to consider, and he calls this the law of love or the royal law. Let's read about that. I'll begin reading now in James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty Of all of it. And now may the Lord add his greatest and richest blessings to the preaching of his holy word. James continues to address the nagging problem of practicing favoritism, and in doing so, he now brings up another interesting subject. If you thought election was interesting, he brings up another interesting subject, and that is the law of God. And when many people begin to think about the law of God, especially believers, it is initially perplexing. We know beyond all doubt, as this epistle and all of the Word of God will teach, that we are saved by grace through faith in the work of Christ. There is nothing added to Christ. We have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. We know that the Bible is most emphatic in declaring that no one, as Paul says, no one, no flesh shall be justified by keeping the law. Paul will say in another place that the law is the tutor or the guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So, so what do we make of the law? What is the place of the law in the life of the church? Why would James bring up the law? What authority does the law have over new covenant believers? Well, that's what James is going to talk to us about this morning, the law, and the relevance and the power and the place of the law in the life of the church, especially in regard to the sin of practicing favoritism. So let's talk about this royal law. You'll see that phrase in verse 8. As we read this paragraph, it becomes clear that the phrase royal law is a summary for the whole law of God. You can see this in verse 10. He mentions the whole law. If you violate the royal law, you violated the whole law of God. So the royal law is in some way deeply connected and intertwined with all of God's moral commandments, those expressed most especially in the Ten Commandments. By using the phrase royal law, James is offering a grand summary of all that God demands from us, even from those who've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now when James quotes this phrase or uses this phrase royal law, he's actually actually referencing a passage from the book of Leviticus. In fact, he he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, where in that place, the Bible says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And this is what James means when he says, it is the royal law according to the Scripture. It is Leviticus 19. That's the one he's talking about. But there's more than just the quotation from the Old Testament. It's more than just a restatement of Leviticus. It is also something Jesus said. And you remember that James is the brother of Jesus. And James is perhaps remembering something that Jesus said about the law and the law summarized and the connection between love and the law. Listen to these words in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. An interesting episode where Jesus encounters Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. And he said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to what Jesus said next. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, do you see what Jesus did in Matthew 22? He summarized both tables of the Decalogue under the majestic heading of love, of love. Think back to the Decalogue, those Ten Commandments. I'm sure you have them somewhere in your memory. Think about the first four commandments, the first table of the law, that, that vertical dimension of God's law. And Jesus says, this shows us how we are to love God. What does it mean to love God? Well, Jesus says, look at the Decalogue. Look at the first four commandments. That's how you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then the second Six Commandments, the horizontal aspect of the law. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. And now you can begin to see what the brother of Jesus, James, is doing. The misbehavior of the church in treating some people different than others is the sin of partiality. And that sin of partiality is a direct violation of the second table of the Decalogue, which is summarized here as the royal Law, And to disobey any part of the law of God is to disobey all of the law of God. Now, why does James refer to the second table of the Decalogue as the royal law? Why the qualifying word royal, the royal law? Well, first, the law is royal because of its origin, right? It comes from the throne of God. It is is the law of his royal kingdom. It, It bears his royal authority. This is not a human precept. This is a divine precept. The Lord God is the author of this law. But secondly, it is royal because it expresses the will of the king for those who belong to his kingdom. It is a kingly law. This is the royal standard for all the children of the king. This is the life-governing law for all of the redeemed of Jesus, and they must diligently keep it. It is a royal law, kingly law. It is the will of the king. This is what the king demands from those he saved. Think about How Jesus repeatedly uttered the command to love others. Think about how Jesus said it repeatedly as witnessed by John in his gospel. John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. Now, he's going to summarize the second table of the Decalogue. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That's the way you are to love one another. By this, he says in John 13, 35, by this, by this love, by this love that's practically expressed by keeping the six laws in the second table of the Decalogue, men will know you are my disciples because you love one another. And then in John 15, this is my commandment, Jesus said, this is my law that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. As we listen to Jesus summarize the law under the heading of love and summarize the second table of the law by loving one another, we find a major clue as to the overall place of the law in the life of a Christian. Our obedience to the Ten Commandments, or the moral law of God, does not secure our salvation. Rather, God's saving grace comes first and then follows our obedient response to his great mercy. It is always redemption first and then the commandments follow. We are not redeemed by our obedience, we are redeemed in order to offer obedience. As one writes, we are not to offer God a meritorious obedience but a responsive obedience. It is the will of our God for the covenant people to love one another as ourselves. Christians can only flourish it's been said, within the setting of God's law. God's law gives us the marching orders. God's law is life. God's law has been given to show us his love for us and to provide for our protection and safety. The law of God is from a God who is good. It is a blessing The law is a delight. We should all be able to say with the psalmist, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. And this is what the law of love is about. We keep it because we've been redeemed and it pleases our Father. But doesn't this beg an obvious question? What is love? What is love? And furthermore, what is it to love one another as you love yourself? For that is the royal law. That's the Ten Commandments summarized. We're to love others as or in the very same manner that we love ourselves. So we have to pause for a moment here this morning and inquire as to how is it that we love ourselves? Well, in the context of the Decalogue, it becomes clear, right? How we love others. And this is in some way connected with how we love ourselves. Think about how we love others practically if we follow the precepts in the second table of the Decalogue. We show our love, number one, by honoring those in authority over us. We give them honor, mothers and fathers, and others that God in his... Wise providence has placed over us, and so we love them by honoring them, we love them by not murdering them, by preserving and protecting and valuing their lives, we love them by not committing adultery that is, we love them by honoring the sanctity of their marriages. That's love. We love them by not stealing. We love them by honoring the sanctity of their possessions. We love them by not bearing false witness against them. We tell the truth about them, and we speak the truth in love, and we love them by not coveting their stuff, their house, their wife, their servant, their cattle, their donkey, or anything that is our neighbor's. We love them in practical ways and That's what this love looks like, and in some way it is connected with the way we love ourselves. We love our neighbor by preserving our neighbor's welfare, by valuing his life, by meeting his needs, and that tells us something about how we love ourselves, and you see the connection. It would appear that there is a kind of love for self that is not unholy or unhealthy. There is a kind of love for self that is good. Now that's a hard one for us because we're all familiar with the associated sins of selfishness and self-centeredness and narcissism and pride that betray a spirit of forbidden love for self. There's a wrong way to love yourself. Oz Guinness, a great Christian thinker and theologian references the ubiquitous selfie as the definition of the modern mindset of self-love. He writes that because of the internet, everyone is now in the business of self-promotion, presenting themselves, explaining themselves, defending themselves, selling themselves, or sharing their inner thoughts and emotions as never before in human history. He writes, the world is full of people, full of themselves. In such an age, I post, therefore I am. How insightful. But he's right. But in contrast to that selfish nonsense that's played out in our lives every day, there is a love for self that is not only good and acceptable but absolutely essential to our humanity. Maybe we can summarize it as one scholar has by the three words concern and care and attention. Our lives would not be possible in any healthy sense if we did not expend energy caring for ourselves, seeking to provide for our needs, both bodily and spiritually. We've been created in the divine image, and we've been created with certain needs that must be met, and we have the obligation to to meet them, and so care and concern and those kinds of terms are indicative of a healthy self-love. In fact, there's a beautiful picture of this kind of self-love tucked in there in Ephesians 5 as Paul speaks of marriage and the way the husband is to love the wife, as Paul says, even as he loves his own body. Paul writes, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but listen, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, and we are members of his body. Did you hear that? Nourishes and cherishes. That's how we love ourselves. We give care to our bodies and our minds and our souls. We take the initiative to meet the needs that make life possible, that are essential to our physical and spiritual lives. When there is a need, we meet it. We don't neglect ourselves because that would be self-destruction and self-hatred. And if we're going to be normal and healthy, we must, in essence, lavish ourselves with care. And that's what the idea is here. True love, the love associated with the royal law, is defined as, as one writes, acting towards other people in ways that are deliberately calculated to bring about their greatest good. Now that is a dramatic contrast to the love substitutes that work themselves around us every day. Think about how often the word love is reduced to mere emotion, what we feel about someone. This explains that popular and misguided notion of falling in and out of love. How many marriages are you aware of? How many marriages do you know that have disintegrated or are disintegrating on the assumption that one or both of the spouses has simply fallen out of love for the other? And think about how such a selfish excuse is that as viewed, is viewed, as a legitimate reason for the dissolution of the marriage covenant. I simply fell out of love with you, darling. What a shallow definition of love. How self-focused, how fragile, how, how wrong that is. That's foreign to the Bible. For love cannot be simply reduced to what we feel about someone else or how they excite us or how they complete us or how they please us or bring a thrill to us. Can you imagine loving yourself emotionally like that? That would be pathological by any measure. And worldly love, it seems, is always about getting what we want. And that's the core of the kind of selfishness that the Bible forbids. The love of the royal law is so much deeper than feelings. This love sees the need and meets it. This love sees the person made in the image of God and cares. This love serves, this love gives, this love is tirelessly devoted to the other person and faithfully responds to their needs. This love is far more of an action than it is a feeling. Of course, there is the grand illustration of the royal law that we find on the lips of Jesus Luke chapter 10, that familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Listen to this parable one more time and think of the royal law. Think about loving yourself properly and then loving others as yourself. Hear the word of Jesus. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, that lawyer said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, and when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and he bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine and then he set him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him and the next day he took out 2 denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said take care of him and whatever more you spend i will repay it when i come back now jesus then said which of these three which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and then The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And that is love. Law fulfilled. That is love. Now, did you catch the elements of the royal law? Did you catch the elements of true love? He saw him and he had compassion. And his compassion was practically expressed. He went to him, got his blood on his new clothes. He went to him, bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine. He, he offered first aid. He picked him up and put him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him there. And then he secured his future care by pulling out of his pocket two days' salary, two denarii. And he paid for the man's needs. And Jesus said, this is love. This is the fulfillment of the royal law. Now, can't you imagine as the readers of this little epistle, as they read the words that James wrote to them, they are feeling deeply convicted about their behavior. Their behavior in light of the royal law of love is so tragic and so displeasing to the Father. They have practiced favoritism. They've been like the priest and the Levite they have treated people differently based on who they are, their wealth or lack thereof, their race, their education, or any kind of consideration such as that. And all of that is not love. All of that is a violation of God's law. And he says in verse 9, if you do that, if you pay attention to those earthly categories, and if that determines how you love people, then you are violating all of the law of God. You are a transgressor. You are A sinner working hard at sin. That is not the way the people of Jesus should behave. What Jesus and what James, his brother, are teaching is this. The royal law will not permit us selfishly to select the recipients of our care. We can't be like the priest. Oh, he's not my kind. Or the Levite. Oh, he's dirty. We can't live that way. We can't treat people that way if we follow Jesus. That is not love. Our neighbor is whoever is in need, and especially whoever wanders into this place of worship who is different than we are. We don't get to select those whom Jesus loves. We don't select the recipients of the gospel and our merciful response to their needs. We cannot care who they are or what color they are or how they're dressed or what their education level is or what side of the tracks they live on. That is irrelevant to Jesus. It must be irrelevant to the people of Jesus. His love must rule the church. That love, the royal love. Law of love must be beating in our hearts. And only then will we hear the well done of the Father. Listen to what James says. If you do this, verse 8, if you do it, you do well. This pleases the Father. This gets his approval. When we lay aside those categories and whoever is in need, whoever needs Christ... Whoever needs mercy, when they, they get it freely from the church, that, that pleases the Lord. It's it's something we do well. We hear the divine commendation: well, well done. That brings pleasure to our Father. And isn't that what we want to do? Is bring pleasure to our Father? We need to keep this law. Our hearts need to be full of love for all, all within the church and all outside the church, and we should make no distinctions based on earthly considerations, but whoever Jesus puts in our way, we are to love as we love ourselves. Now, how do you get this love in the first place? That's quite a tall order, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking, hey, Mike, if you, if you were related to the people I'm related to, you'd have sympathy for me. Or if you had my neighbors or my boss or, or whatever. Oh, it's a tall, a tall order. But where does this love begin? And maybe you're already anticipating the answer. Go back to the summary of... Of the law the Lord gave Himself. The law is fulfilled in this that we love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And then, and perhaps only then, we are able to love our neighbor as ourselves. This law of love, this royal law, only gets off the ground in our hearts as we love God as we love the one who first loved us. It starts there. It starts with being a Christian first. If you're not a Christian, you could never keep this law in any form or shape or by any degree that would ever receive the well done of God the Father because your heart is unable to love this way. This is a supernatural love. It is a gift that comes with the Spirit of God who comes into our hearts when we, in mercy, find Jesus faithful to save and to redeem. Whoever has the Spirit of God has the Spirit of his love. Paul says the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You can't even begin to love this way until you know the king of love, until you've repented and believed and confessed that Christ is Lord. Then your love journey begins. But assuming that's true of you, how is this love inflamed? How is it improved? How is it deepened? Well, we go back to the first table of the Ten Commandments. How do you love God? Well, it it certainly isn't that you have emotions for Him, although those may be there. Here's how you love God. You have no God besides Him. You cast down all your idols and all those things you love more than Him, all those little idols that you serve and worship, you throw them down, and you have only God the Father as your God. That's how you love him. You love him by not making him in in your image, by not not recrafting who God is, by not telling God who he has to be. You love God by worshiping the God who is. You take him as he is. In his majesty, holiness, sovereignty, power, all those omni-attributes, you take him as he is and you don't recast him, you don't remake him. You say, I am your servant. That's how you love him. And you love him by honoring his sacred name. By making sure your profession that Jesus is Lord is commensurate with the way you are living. That you're living up to the name that has saved you. And that you cease with his strength and his power. You cease from your sinful works. And you find your soul's rest, your soul's Sabbath rest in the Savior alone. You live a life of repentance, ceasing from your evil works and clinging to Jesus and finding his Sabbath rest now. That's how you love God. And as we do, we will be able to love the world and each other and those the Lord brings into our hearts. The king of love will inflame our hearts with his love as we love him first. Beloved, as John says, let us love one another, and let us love one another with the love of God, and let us love the world And welcome them to come and meet our Savior. Would you pray with me?